Hi, this is Pastor Robert Blanchard from Lansing First United Methodist Church here in Lansing, Michigan. I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out our sermon podcast. And if you want to learn more about what we do here at Lansing First, or you want to support us in our mission of going deep, reaching out, and loving Lansing, you can do so online at lansingfirst.org. Thanks. Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and flesh. For some time while Saul was king over us, it was you who led out Israel and brought it in. The Lord said to you, It is you who shall be shepherd of my people Israel, you who shall be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. Even the blind and lame will turn you back, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. David had said on that day, Whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart and soul and mind. Amen. During ordinary time this year, we're going through a series of 24 weeks of exploration through the Hebrew Bible to learn more about our own human condition God's nature, and how those two things interact with each other. During the first half of our series, we'll see a number of promising beginnings that give way to human frailty and lead to downfall. At the midpoint, we will stop to hear the voice of God. Then in the second half of the series, we will see how listening to God's voice redeems us from our frailty. It's been a few weeks since I've been with all of you, so let's do a quick recap of where we're at in our story. We began in the time of the kings when the prophet Isaiah was given a warning by God to be delivered to the people of Judah. God had grown tired of their disobedience and was going to let them suffer the consequences of their actions as a punishment. Then we took a step back in time to a different beginning in the story to work our way back up to that point so that we could see how God's patience had been tested. 
we went back to the end of the time of the judges and the beginning of the time of the kings. At that point in time, God had forewarned the people about the decision that they were making. God let them know that if they wanted a king, then that was their choice to make, but also told them that taking a king as the other peoples around them had done would mean living like the other peoples. That is to say, living under a system of oppression, injustice, and violence. The elders of the tribes of Israel had already made up their mind, and so they set about finding their first king, Saul. Saul and his son Jonathan repeatedly disobeyed the will of the Lord, and so God told the prophet Samuel to find a new king to be appointed. We then saw David be christened as the true king of Israel, but it was not yet time for his nature to be revealed. And then after that, we heard about David facing off against Goliath and driving the Philistines from the land. Since that point in the story, a lot has happened, but the gist of it is this. Saul made David the commander of the armies of Israel. David became more and more famous. Saul grew more and more jealous. Saul tried to kill David. David outlived Saul, who was killed by the Philistines. David returned to Judah to become a king. A civil war broke out, and eventually the forces loyal to David triumphed over those loyal to the remnants of Saul's household. This finally brings us to where the story picks up today. David has won the civil war between the tribes of Israel and has been anointed king over all the tribes. His conquests as the king are just beginning, however, and his eyes are set upon the hilltop stronghold of Jerusalem, known also in the text as Jebus. And if I just stuck to the text of the lectionary, we would skip right past the verses where David does his conquering. The lectionary would have had us go from the number of years that David reigned in Hebron and Jerusalem to David occupying the stronghold with no explanation of what happened for David to actually be in the stronghold. This is where the lectionary occasionally falls short. When troublesome passages appear, the decision made is often to just omit them. But I want us this morning to dwell for a bit on this difficult passage because life can be difficult and we need to have a faith that does not shy away from the difficulty. So essentially what happens in this text is that David marches against the Jebusites who taunt him from within the safety of their walls. Their taunts have something to do with the lame and the blind, but the exact nature of the taunts have lost their meaning over the centuries. Perhaps it's something along the lines of, our walls are so secure and our city so well-equipped that even the crippled and the blind could hold you off. Indeed, Jerusalem was a very defendable city, and it would eventually serve the kings of Judah well in a number of sieges. But this time, its walls are not enough, as David's soldiers infiltrate a water shaft leading into the city and slaughter everyone inside. Having conquered the stronghold, David then declares that the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. To put it plainly, the seat of David's power is established on the site of a genocide. 
I wish that the Bible then said that this is a bad thing, because that would make interpreting it so much easier for us. But instead, what does the text say? It says, David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And you may be asking yourself, well, doesn't that make it easy enough for us to understand this passage? David killed those people, but God was with him, so that makes it okay. And I suppose if we're willing to set aside Jesus and the cross, then we could leave it at that. But as Christians, if we're viewing the entirety of the scriptures through the lens of Christ, then the answer can't be that easy. Not only did Jesus go to the cross asking for forgiveness for those very people who were doing violence to him, but he left us with the wisdom that those who use the sword, those who do violence, will perish alongside their weapons. We're going to celebrate communion in just a little bit. And in doing so, we will recall the words of Christ when he declared, This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Christ we serve died not just for us, died not just for people who look like us or speak like us or belong to the same nation as us, but died for all people which leaves us in the tricky position of trying to reconcile God's most perfect revelation of the Word, a capital W word in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, with God's self-revelation through the written Word, a lowercase w word in Scripture. So where do we begin to unravel this problem? We begin with our understanding of Scripture. As United Methodists, we're not fundamentalists or literalists. In fact, John Wesley wouldn't even understand what those terms mean today because those ways of reading the Bible are barely more than a hundred years old. Rather, John Wesley instructs us to read Scripture according to the scope and tenor of the whole text. So if we have something that doesn't make sense to us, we compare it with the rest of the Bible to figure it out. And the overarching tenor of the Bible is love. God is love and God is justice, but we're, if we're ever in doubt, we are to err on the side of love and leave the judgment in the hands of God. The other thing for us to understand about Scripture, since we're not literalists or fundamentalists, is that we understand the Bible to be infallible in the sense that the truth that it conveys the truth of God's love and justice is never wrong. The Bible is not infallible in the sense that every word that was written was directly dictated from God. Yes, the Bible is divinely inspired. Yes, the Spirit breathed inspiration into human beings who wrote about their experiences of God. But when it came down to the actual act of writing the Bible, it was done by human hands and human minds and human cultures in human languages in particular points in history. When Paul told the Corinthians that we only see in a glass darkly, this is what he meant. 
He recognized that his understanding of God was not perfect because we have not yet seen God face to face. And if we want to take a step back from these sort of theological considerations for a moment, we know that not every word was perfectly dictated from God for much more mundane reasons. We have different versions of the same scriptures that use different words. If you have a study Bible with footnotes at the bottom, you've probably seen places where it says something like, other sources say, or other manuscripts say, because the texts were living documents, recorded, shared, and passed from community to community and generation to generation. More than that, we know that these texts were living documents because we can see the authors disagreeing with each other within the texts. Genesis is the easiest example of this because we can distinctly see that it begins with two different versions of creation written by two different factions within the Jewish community at the time. The last point that I want to address on the mundane reason that we're not literalists is because if we were, then we would have to read the Bible in the ancient Hebrew, Koine Greek, and Aramaic in which it was written. It's impossible to perfectly translate any language into another in a literalist, fundamentalist sense. All of which is to say this. It is never as easy as simply saying, well, the Bible says, because the Bible doesn't always agree with itself. And I also want to make sure that we understand it's okay that the scriptures don't always agree with themselves because the ancient editors understood that the whole of those perspectives was greater than the sum of their disagreeing parts. When we pick up the Bible, we're reading the experiences of our ancestors in the faith as they understood God to be speaking to them and usually, if we're not reading it in the original language, we're doing so through the lens of someone else who has already made choices about how to translate the text. So the next step in figuring out how we reconcile this problem has to be learning about the people who wrote each different text of the Bible in order to understand the world that they lived in. As for David, his kingdom, and these books specifically, we know little for certain. Probably these books took their final form during the time of the Babylonian exile, hundreds of years after David would have been alive. But the first authors may have begun writing about the events of David as contemporaries. Whatever the unknowable reality of their composition is, all we really know is that they're preserved as part of a cultural project to maintain ancient Judean identity. And unfortunately, that leaves us at a bit of a dead end. So what do we do when we've thought long and hard about the text and about the history and we still have no good answer? Do we simply chalk it up to God being more vindictive and violent in the Old Testament? Well, no, we, we can't do that, as tempting as it might be to find an easy answer, because the God who is revealed through Jesus Christ is the same God who is revealed through the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Hebrew Bible. 
So if it's the same God who's with David when he conquered the Jebusites as the God who went to the cross to die for his enemies, what answer can we come to? Again, I wish that I had a nice, easy answer for you. But the truth is that I don't. The only sufficient answer that I can come to is that if we are better, if we are to better understand God, then we have to get better at making space in our minds for complicated truths and ambiguity. The thing I know and what scripture attests is this, Jesus did not condone violence even in self-defense and certainly would not condone genocide. So in order for me to make sense of this reading, it has to come down to the way that these authors of scripture misinterpreted their own role in the story of God. To make a literary comparison, David is not an outright hero, but a tragic figure akin to Macbeth. Remember where we're heading in this part of our story. God gets fed up with the people and lets them reap the whirlwind of their actions. And remember where we began this story. God warned the people that having a king would go as well for them as it did for anyone else. It's easy for us in our success to assume that God has given us our success and it's easy for us to assume that when something goes wrong, God has caused it to go wrong. If we put it all on God, then we have to take no responsibility for our own actions. But that's not the way that God has been involved in the story of David or Saul. God might well be with them as a parent is with a child throughout their life, but that doesn't mean that God condones everything the kings do, just as a parent doesn't always condone the actions of their child. And I know I've been going for a while now and that this was a rather deliberate and plotting way to get to the point of saying, sometimes the truth is complicated and we need to take responsibility for our own actions. But I did so because this kind of theology is literally the difference between life and death for people. Easy answers about God condoning violence against our enemies are what led to the Crusades. It's what led to the Inquisition. It's what led to colonization. It's what led to the extermination chambers of the Holocaust. It's the kind of theology that fuels the ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people today. It is also the kind of theology that makes us blind to our own history. As Christians, if we choose to celebrate civic holidays like Independence Day, then we need to be able to hold complicated truths within ourselves. Our nation is not perfect and never has been, nor is it so flawed that it's beyond redemption. In this way, it mirrors us as individuals. We need to be able to admit that the same men who wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not extend those unalienable rights to the people whom they held in slavery, to women, 
or even to men outside their own economic class. We need to be able to admit that as a nation of immigrants, we committed one of the largest genocides in human history against the indigenous peoples who lived here. We need to admit that as a land of opportunity, not all who seek that opportunity are given equal access to it. We need to admit that for all of our lofty ideals, we've often fallen short of them during our history, and that falling short continues to have a real impact on the lives of people today. And we need to do these things not out of any hatred or malice for the nation in which we live, but out of a love that desires for our nation to live into the best of what it can be by taking responsibility for the consequences of our collective actions. When the Reverend John Winthrop delivered a sermon to his fellow pilgrims before they established the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he famously invoked the image of being a city on a hill. Not unlike that hilltop stronghold of Jerusalem, the hill upon which the Lord will establish his kingdom. Before he invoked this image, this is what he had to say. Now the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and our community in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He then says, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God's and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. If we misrepresent God, we bring shame to the people of God and we give ammunition to the enemies of our Lord. So let us not be like the author of 1 Samuel. Let us not pretend that God's blessing was upon everything that we have ever done. And let us not be like the lectionary, simply skipping over the parts of our story that make us uncomfortable. If we must boast, then let us do as Paul instructs the Corinthians and boast of our weaknesses so that we can allow God's grace to enter into our lives and empower us to become more perfect. Let us be honest about our shortcomings. Let us repent of the ways that we have broken God's laws and not loved our neighbors so that we can enter more fully into communion with the Holy Spirit 
can proclaim God's presence more authentically in the moments when we do embody the love of Christ. Let us confess, repent, and change our ways so that we may enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God, who walks with us in every moment, give us hearts honest enough to confess our mistakes. Give us spirits of responsibility to own up to our actions. When we use you as our cosmic scapegoat, convict our minds so that we can realize the error of our ways and turn back toward righteousness. Make us your faithful and obedient servants in heart, mind, and body so that we might represent you well in this life. Amen.